0: Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life.
1: can grab a seat. It is a different kind of day in the sense that we're going to accomplish a couple things today that we don't normally do on Sundays. And the first one is is very intentional. uh, Well, both are very intentional. One is very practical to what we're going through as a community, as a church, as followers of Jesus, and that'll come after we get into the text. But the other one, before we even get into the text, we have to announce something that's very important. And the reason why we're going to spend a little bit of time announcing it. And forgive me for the speed with which I go through it. I understand that you may not all like the sound of my voice for 55 minutes, so I'm going to try and condense it as much as possible. But today begins the uh, annual fundraiser that we start for our scholarship kids in the Philippines. It's in a province south of Manila. The town is called Navotas. It's a slum. It's a, it's a program that we have done for uh, the better part of almost nine years. The, the, a little bit of backstory is when my wife, Jen, and I felt like God was asking us to lead, to, to lead a church. Before that even began, he birthed in us a desire to, to do something about those that are trafficked. We felt this about over 11 years ago, 12 years ago, and God just kept saying, like something's going to happen, something's going to happen. We didn't know that when we were left and, and were led to start Rev that we would end up getting connected to this small little church in Novotis in the slums, in this province, that, that there's a ton of people that are here that have been there before. And in getting connected to them, we figured out some things that were massive discrepancies. My, my wife and I thought we really felt like God was going to ask us to do something here locally in the trafficking thing. We spent about two years kind of exhausting that and praying through that. And ultimately felt like this is something that we as a church can get behind. And so if you hear us say Novotis or the Philippines, and I, I know that many of you would be like, oh, cool, okay, neat, got it, great. Some of you, though, however, that have been there, um, actually in the room, if you've been there, show of hands, because there's a few people that are here. Just cut. yep, one, two, three, four, yep. The little kid hasn't yet in the back. There we go. So a few of us have been there. But um, we will continue to take trips there, not because we feel like we do missions there, but because... Pastor William and, and Mercy, who run it, have pleaded for us to not just send money, but to be connected relationally. And so what do we do in Novota Scholarship real quickly before we do this? You're like, oh man, I came to get pitched on money. I knew I picked the wrong Sunday. The Sunday after Easter is always the wrong one, right? I get that. But that's not the desire. My desire is not to pitch anything to you. My desire is to captivate your heart. I knew I would get emotional. I'm not sad. Because I have to talk about money. <laughs> because it's it's atrocious what darkness can do to the lives of people. It's disgusting, it's horrific, and I don't tell you this to, to pull on some emotional string and get you to do anything with your money, because if you're doing it just emotionally, just keep it in your pocket. That's the wrong motivation. These kids, we have 55 students this year. I'm going to look at you. You've got this put in a chair near you, in front of you. You're welcome to take it. If you intend to pray or to, to give to it or anything of like that, keep it. If you just want to know some information and you're not sure where you're at, you can leave it so someone else can have it. But this year, we will have eight elementary students, 35 high school students, and seven college students. Um, and that, by this year, it's not actually the school year that starts in June. That's when their school year starts. The school year actually starts, it's the school year for the following June. We always raise a year ahead, and the reason why we do that is because we have committed to it whether people give or not. We will figure out a way to make this happen because we believe in what God's doing. Um, but we've had three college students graduate from this program, which is amazing. And what we don't understand, is, is almost impossible for us to understand, is that they can't go to school because they have to have a uniform, and they can't afford a uniform. So a lot of them don't go to school. And in the province in, in Navotas, what happens is if you don't go to school, you can't get a job. Because in the Philippines, it's so saturated, you need a college education to work at McDonald's. And so it is a vicious cycle where what ends up happening in Navotas in the province there, what happens is um, slavery. The kids get sent off and they know A lot of the families know what they're getting sent off to because they're going to work in a bar in hopes to send money back so that the rest of the family can survive. Um, It is a really difficult thing. Over the last eight years, we have seen God do amazing things through Fishers of Christ Church. Um, It's it's incredible what God has done. I would encourage you to pray for them. There is, if you are like, I want to know more about it, you don't have to just sit with me. Like I said, there's many people here that have been and, um, I don't think any one of them would be like, oh yeah, it's, it's okay, don't do part of it. You don't need to. You might be amazed at how passionate anyone that has been and, and connected with these people believes in what God is doing here. A couple victories that I think is worth knowing, um, the, the Goombas, the pastors that, that run the church there, they don't, we don't sponsor an entire family, which at first was really hard for me to to reconcile in my brain. It's like, wait, so brother gets to go or sister gets to go, but no one else does. And, and William told me, he said, the reason why is, Brent, you don't understand one person within education changes the dynamic of the whole family. It makes a, a bigger, lasting ish, uh, bigger, lasting effect. In fact, um, some of the families that had scholarship kids have been removed from scholarship kids because we did a microloan system there, too, that's been funding itself, and they become some of the largest donors of the church, and so like, we don't need our kids to be on scholarship, let someone else have that. And so it's just a matter of brokenness that you're just seeing severed at the root level where these kids are doing something incredible. And so I, I'm asking you, we, are, we had every intention last year before COVID came um, to have this really great night where we're going to share all the details of everything from the backstory and all that stuff. We still will do that. We still have a plan on giving as much information as we possibly can to you, not just because um, we want you to give money, although that would be awesome but because um, it's important for us to, as a church to know that this is where we invest. This is, this is a, a good chunk of money. It's about $24,000, $28,000 to do this annually every year. That includes all kinds of things. That includes a meal every day, which we also added a summer feeding program because we found out after the first summer. It's like, where, what do these kids eat during the summer? And William and Mercy are like, oh, they don't. It's like, what? They get a meal while they're in school, but, but they don't during the summer, so we started a summer feeding program. And then um, we figured out that they didn't need medical, so this adds a medical checkup. It's transportation to get to and from school. This last year, one of the hardest things, and you guys have faithfully given every year. We have not, not made it every year, which is amazing. Last year, we had to raise an extra $4,000 because we got a call from William and Mercy saying we have a problem. They forced us to go to online school, and no one has an electronic device. So can we use the food money? <laughs> so they can go to school. And those are things we don't have to wrestle with. I don't have to go, am I gonna eat today or am I gonna get to school? And then some of you college students think that, but trust me, you have it better than that. And I said, of course, take it. We will find you the school money. We will find you the food money as well. And people gave, and we were able to raise it. So thank you for your faithfulness in that. Um, so I would recommend you talk to anyone else but me about this, because this is what you'll get from me the whole time. But I'm asking you to give, to give generously. Um, a couple things, and I, I'm not worried about us getting the money for this because I believe wholly in what God is doing. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and it's really easy for us to do it. Um, the way that you can do it is, is about $240 is kind of what we estimate. That's not the cost of a student. It's actually $245 for an elementary school student annually. Um, and then you can, see that, you can see that breakdown on there. But if we, the total number, if, if 100 people gave $240 or $20 a month, we'd get we get the need met. So um, I'm asking you to do this. A couple things that I think is important. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think so often we say, God, would you change my heart and then I'll do something else with my treasure? And he says, no, no, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so some of you, you need to put your, your treasure where it belongs in the things of God. And so I I ask you to give faithfully. In fact, I'm going to say it this way because I think it's important. We don't talk about money very often, and um, that's not because we're afraid of it, but because we just try to stay in the Scriptures. But this isn't an ask to say, hey, whatever God has asked you to give, just go ahead and take that away from some other missionary or take that away from what you're giving to the church and just, just reappropriate it here. Now, maybe God is asking you to do that, but what I'm going to ask you to pray about is God asking you to give over and above what you've felt He's asked you to commit to the church. And I know that it's not as sexy to give to a church, but God's ministry is happening everywhere. There was a season for as a church where I was, we were young and and foolish where we had at one point, we had $15,000 in the savings for Novotis and we weren't making payroll here. We weren't even keeping the doors open, but we had this $15,000 in Novotis. And I had this realization that it's like if we fall apart, I can't afford this on my own. Um, It it takes a church to do this together. And so so I know that it's not popular for people to hear money on Sunday, especially like, man, I just came for a sermon. I feel like I'm getting gypped. I told you, it's the week after Easter. Now you know next year, okay? God is after your heart. It's not a mistake that Jesus speaks over and over and over again, says you cannot serve both God and money. It is not a mistake that he speaks about that because we all have some level of brokenness around money. It is either an idol in our frugalness, it is an idol in how generous we are, or it is a, we are a slave to filling our own needs and making things happen. Before we move on to what will also be difficult for us to talk about, if you're not in a place to give, I would ask you to pray. And one of the things that my Western foolish Christian mind wrestled with when I first went to the Philippines is every time I'd ask for them, how can I pray? They would say, would you pray for provision and health? And I was like, yeah, 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 but like, that's like asking me to pray for your cousin's dog. Like, what do you really need? And then I realized that they really need that. They They pray, give us our daily bread because that's an actual need. So they're doing awesome. You can be praying for them. They are struggling a lot. The Philippines is really locked down and it's not a fun place to get imprisoned if you break the rules. And so they're giving weird passes to the pastors so they can keep going out. They're trying to find things out. It's, it's really, really hard, but the students are still going. <laughs> they're still sending over their, their attendance reports and their excitement, and they're passing their grades. And we're seeing more and more students in this system, and this program, and it's awesome. And what we're seeing is, is a province, a, a small area of slum that was a farming area for sex trafficking. It's being broken free of that by the gospel. And what's amazing, and you've been there. If you've been there when we do a medical mission, you see that they have these people training to to speak to the people that are going to come in from from the community. And you realize that these are all people that are scholarship parents that have come to faith through this time. So it's amazing what God has done. It's not us. It's not your money. It's God alone. And it's the faithfulness of his spirit in our brothers and sisters across the world. And so I would encourage you to be broken for this. I would encourage you, if you are not financially giving, and this is your church, to be broken for that. To be freed from the slavery that comes from the bondage of hoarding our stuff and our money. And I would ask you to pray about giving. You can either give on our website directly. You'll see it. This thing explains everything. There's a little tear-off here. You do not have to do the tear-off here. The only reason why we want that is if you're going to commit to something and you aren't giving yet, just so that we can budget, because like I said, we like to stay ahead of this to make sure that we aren't ever stuck in a spot where they aren't getting what they need for it. So that's the Novotis thing. Let me pray for us, and then we will jump into another fun thing to talk about. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for what you're doing in the Goombas. Man, to, to think that I was so frustrated to be stuck in my air-conditioned home with my freezer and my fridge for all those months, and my brothers and sisters were stuck in an eight-foot room with dirt, no fridge, and no way to get out. God, your brokenness is absolutely everywhere. In fact, your brokenness is all over. Our our, our brokenness is all over in this room. And so I pray for our hearts. I pray for our hearts to be generous. I pray that we be marked by generosity, not because we have a lot, but because you have given us all we have. Um, I pray, God, for, um, I pray for Rev... As a church, I pray that we would steward your finances well. I pray that we would bring glory to you by whatever is spent anywhere, and I thank you for the fact that we don't take any cost off of this, that every dollar that comes in goes directly there. Um, I pray for their ability to continue to manage it as they pastor and shepherd so many families, as they care for people um, far, way farther beyond what I do as a pastor here. It's amazing. Um, I pray for the individuals that are here today that maybe even are hearing this and they're just, there's st- something stirring up in them. God, I pray that they wouldn't squash that down. Even if it has nothing to do with money. Maybe it's just that you are ad- you're actually speaking to them like one of our missionaries, like Brent from- with MAF and saying, nope, I'm going to send you. And not for something short, I got something big for you that's going to be impossible for you to do without relying on me and the community of people that I have put around you. God, wherever it is, I pray, for, um, I pray for more light. I pray for more freedom. Um, it amazes me to think even in the eight years how many of those families have broken the cycle. Families that were spending an entire week peeling a 40-pound bag of garlic for $5 for the whole week have their own businesses now and are able to bless others in the community. God, that's only you. I thank you for all the families all the individuals that, um, that don't know you, that, that, that have come to know you through your faithfulness in your spirit, through individuals like us, I thank you that we get to just send some money and you get to do amazing things with it, Lord. And so I pray, I pray we'd be broken in our, in our finances. I pray if, if nothing else is hurt today, that people would leave recognizing that maybe they're enslaved to money and they need to be freed from it. And instead of us asking for you to change our heart, God, maybe we should just have the discipline to put our treasure elsewhere and watch you work in our heart. We have so much here and we keep getting more and more and more. And I do not believe that that is so that we can just really be comfortable and we can end end our life with a really big fat bank account. God, I believe that you have given your children resources to be a blessing to this world to those that are broken, to those that don't know you yet. And I pray, God, I pray that we would be, as I'm sure many of us have been frivolous in our spendings at time, I pray that we get caught accidentally every now and then being frivolous in our giving. Um, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for watching me cry. That's awesome. Um, Have you ever had um, experienced that we got a talk moment? I know this is a hard transition and it's just going to get harder throughout the day i'm sorry there's no way to get around it you know that 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 conversation where come on someone says hey we need to talk i got something i have to talk to you about and it's not a hey i got to confess something that i've done it's a there's something i see in you that's broken there's something that i need to speak to that i think that you're you're off in your thinking and because of that I think this is going to be a hard conversation. And if you've ever seen that or, or been in a conversation like that or you're someone that's done a conversation like that, you know that whoever's doing that conversation isn't excited about it. You can see it on their faces. You can see them maybe even, maybe even ver- like physically shaking or, or very flushed because they're nervous about the response of what someone may or may not say based on our reaction to them or our, the way we say it. If you've ever been in that spot where you're the one that has to have that conversation with someone, you've played the words through your mind over and over again and tried to think about the nicest and the best way. If you've never had anyone ever sit down and have that conversation with you, I would, I would just caution you that you're living your life at a distance or with a wall, or you have too much pride to be presented, or you're not hearing it because... Really, if you think about it, if you're going to live your life in any way close proximity, even with your spouse, let alone, you are going to mess up. You are going to sin against them. And sometimes you're not going to see it like myself. We're not going to see it in ourselves. And you're going to experience these conversations. And and you know, at the end of the day, even if they say things wrong and they hurt you in how they say it, but you know the person, you know the character of the person, you realize, like, man, they love me. They care about me. Because they were willing to say this to me, they care about me. And maybe their fears were... Amplified and they were over they were over exaggerated. Maybe they were too concerned that that, oh man, if I say it the wrong way, like they they'd taken it, or maybe they had a, a a wrong beliefs about certain things of you. But you know at the end of the day, the fact that they were willing to sit down and have that conversation with you shows just how much they care about you. Well, that's kind of what Jesus does here in John 6. The reason why we didn't read through the scripture today is because I didn't want to spend more time reading the entirety of chapter six, because that's what we're gonna do today. We spent Some time on Palm Sunday looking at the first chunk of chapter six. And then we spent some time on Resurrection Sunday last week looking at the last chunk of chapter six. And really, the application of this chapter is the same, really, of what you get. Is he, he's the bread of life, and, and ultimately, it's our response to him. So so that application doesn't change. But there were some teachings in here that I think are really powerful and really strong and worth worth us just spending a little bit of time. I promise we'll be in chapter seven next week. I'm not trying to to lengthen this out for no reason at all. But also because as I was praying through this, I realized that it's probably worth us talking about our response to difficult teachings. And I know we did that a little bit on Easter and, and Palm Sunday. But really, what, what, I, what I'm thinking about now is, is with Jesus here, he starts to say some things and it ends, we, we talked about last week, it culminates with many of his disciples. Now, that wasn't the 12, but many of the disciples. Picture hundreds of people literally walking away from him because his truth was just too hard to swallow. I think it's worth us maybe looking at some of those truths a little bit today. Uh, this is a, a, a set of scripture, this is a truth that I will caution you that the church has spent a good chunk of its life dividing over. The church has spent a good amount of its time fighting about it. And, and I think there's also a good amount of time of, of understanding. I will also say this, I can say with the utmost confidence that in this room right now, we would probably be more divided on where we understood and landed on this subject than any one of us would assume, which I absolutely love. But it's a truth that I think is really, really important. See, so there's two things that Jesus says in John 6. There's many, but the two kind of the main things that really offend everyone that's around him. The first one is that he says, I'm I'm the only way. I'm the only way. I'm the bread of life. I'm your sustenance. That's it. I'm the only way. You are not in the kingdom of God based on anything you do or any of your works. In fact, the works you must do is to the work of believing in me. And that was really offensive because it's a people that believe that they were in based on their birthright and and the fact that they were operating in obedience to the commands of that birthright, of being those people of God. But Jesus says, no. No. No, that doesn't do it. That's not it. It's, it's in me. That's where you get it. And that's the first offense. And I think most of us are like, oh, yeah, that's not too offensive. That's cool. We're, we're good with that. We heard that all over on Easter bread. Move on. That's great. Right? Like, but the problem is, is that many people are not okay with this. In fact, if you just spend any time around anyone that has been raised in the church and now run from the church or someone that doesn't believe in God, which hopefully you have a good handful of those people in your life because we are to be salt and light. If they're not in your life, we got some problems. But if you spend any time, you'll you'll realize real quickly some of the the frustrations that people will have around this idea of Jesus being the only way is this idea that it's exclusive. It's closed-minded. Man, you might even be considered hateful by saying Jesus is the only way. That's not very tolerant of us to say that Jesus is the only way. And most of you in here, you're like, yeah, I I probably got that. So we'll move on to the one that probably more, more of us will struggle with. Really, the other part that really comes in this text, as he comes through it, he says it four or five different ways in here. Is this idea of no one coming to Jesus except for the ones that the Father has drawn out? This is the this is the offense that comes, and I think this is one that we will struggle with: is you can't come to God without Him drawing you out. Before we get there, it's interesting. I want to I want to ask you this question: Is what's your last straw? You know, some of you right now are like, oh, man, i got to just sit through this sermon long enough because my last straw was what we did talking about money. And you're like waiting to get it. But see, every, every one of us has a, a last straw. And we may not know it, but you'll know it when you hit it. Right? But with Jesus, this was their last straw. They couldn't handle this truth anymore. This was, not, this was not acceptable, so this was their, their proverbial moment, their moment of, of exodus, their exodus moment of leaving Jesus because I've reached it, I can't go on. Well, I think the same's true for us as a community of people. The same's true for you the people in your gospel community. Friendships, unfortunately, it's true for some of you in marriages. The job you're at right now, you have this last straw moment When this happens, I'm out. The the problem with this knowing the last straw and knowing those things is that you're basically saying that like no matter what happens, if this one thing happens, I'm I'm out. And you're not leaving any openness for what God may be doing. You know, I I, um a little bit of my story. Uh, when I was when I was I was I was born at a young age. Eh, Okay, sorry. I was born into a Greek Orthodox family, and I was an altar boy. Got to do the incense was my favorite day. Tried to like, I really tried to smoke the house out. Like it was awesome. And the entire service was in Greek. So, do I speak Greek? No. So I missed all of it. And when I was about ten years old, um, my parents they just kind of we just exited the, the church and some a drama that I was my ten-year-old mind couldn't understand, but my parents were wrestling with. And and I spent the better part of my high school and junior high life living um, atrociously selfish. Like, I mean, just like, just ugly. And I don't know, like, I, I want my kids to have the story that they will like, I just don't remember a day not following Jesus. That's the story I pray for my kids. And if that's your story, please, please do not diminish that. That is a gift of God. It is still a mirac- miraculous thing that you are a follower of Jesus. Because apart from him, we're useless. But one thing I found in pastoral ministry is if you spent any time not with Jesus, you are pretty keenly aware of the ability you have of brokenness and depravity and darkness. And so I spent my life just living kind of for myself. And not, I mean, don't get me wrong, my dad, was, you'd be respectful and had manners, and, and I wanted people to like me, but it was mostly because I wanted to be a people pleaser. And it gave me something, if people liked me. Like, it was a selfish thing. That's the way I'd say it now. And at, at like, 14, I realized, I realized, I realized that there's something else out there. If this is life, there has to be more to it. And at this 14 years old, I started looking into all kinds of ministry, or all kinds of things. I looked into Mormonism and Catholicism and Buddhism, because I had friends in these areas, and so it's like, okay, well, this is it. And, and then by the time I was about 16, I got introduced to this Jesus idea. And at the time, I think I had an emotional response to Jesus. I had the tears, which you guys can tell I'm obviously don't have a hard time doing that. Um, and I, I, I think, like, I liked the idea of Jesus for him saving me from hell or bringing some kind of meaning to my life. But I really didn't like the idea of, like, submitting my life to him that came about a year or two later. And the reason why I tell you this story is because um, it's it's my story. (laughs) It's what God has done with me. And each of you have that story too, but it's what God has done with you. The reason why I tell you that story is because at 14, I'd love to tell, there's two ways I can tell a story. At 14, in my brilliant adolescent mind, I all of a sudden realized that there's a bigger meaning to this world. And so I started pursuing that. Or at 14, I was drawn to something. I was pulled to something. I was, I was opened to something. And so I started looking for those things. And really, you and I can argue until we're blue in the face about which one it was. I'll just tell you that I was lost and now, I, now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. Because ultimately, the, the, the story isn't based on what happened there. The story is based on the fact that I'm, I'm holy and blameless before God based on nothing I have done on my own. And that's what salvation is. But when we come to a scripture like this, I think it would be a disservice for me as one of your pastors to not at least lean into the text here instead of digging into this idea. So I'm going to ask you guys, will you come in and sit on the couch with me? I have something I need to tell you. I have something that I need to talk to you, and, and I'm going to try and do the best I can with the time I have by the Spirit inside of me to not get in the way of what God wants to show you. And then we're going to apply it to a very practical thing that we are going through. What, what, I'm, what I'm toying around with, what we're, we're kind of tipping our toes into, is this idea of what is our role and God's role in the salvation story? This is what we're wrestling with here, and, and Jesus speaks uh, mostly here. He speaks other words, but like, this is the most unbelievable, like, multifaceted angle, which with him talking about it in this text, and so really quickly, I want to kind of just declutter. What I'm not going to do here, okay? I'm not going to try and land on some systematic theology, Okay? I have no desire. When I say systematic theology, that's the great theology that, that man and women have studied and, and put together. No, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm just going to try and look at it through the scripture. But there's two things that we have to do to kind of declutter the ground. First off is this idea. What we're talking about here is predestination, election, or free will. Now, the problem with that understanding is that we have to, we have to define it. I want to actually use different terms. I want to say, um, instead of those, I want to say um, man's choice or God's choice. And the reason why is because if you really look at free will, you can make no decision without some form of an influence. We are influenced in all ways. Even in my brokenness, I'm influenced. I'm influenced by the place I live. I'm influenced by the people around me. I'm influenced across the board. So to say that I can make a decision with zero influence, nothing affecting me at all, it's just not possible. God alone is the only one that can make a decision without any external influences. Scriptures does not teach that we can make decisions without influences. Now, the Scriptures do speak to a will, and that's what we're going to talk about here in a second, okay? And in fact, I'll give you a couple here. Um, We... We see this in Scripture. We see that, that, that Will has this, this idea of, of making choices. Biblically, we have the responsibility to respond to what God has revealed to us, including his call to believe the gospel. We see that in John 1 and 3 and Acts 16, Romans 10, and in Revelations 22. So we see that there's this, there's this choice that has to play in this. There's this, this, this thing. In fact, in John here, and I'll get there in a second, we see both at play here we also see very clearly in the scriptures over and over and over again god's choice this idea of predestination We see romans 8 29 ephesians 1 they both teach that god has predestined some to salvation the word predestined means determine the destiny beforehand so we see that on what basis god predestines who will be saved can be debated until we're blue in the face and that's, I think, where people tend to get tripped up. Numerous other New Testament passages refer to believers being chosen or elected to salvation. Matthew 24: 31, Mark 13, set 27, Romans eight, Romans nine, Romans 11, Romans 28, if you're right, if you, I'll just email these if you want them all. Ephesians 1, Colossians three, first 1 Thessalonians 1, First Timothy five, second Timothy two, Titus 1, First Peter one and first Peter two, and Second Peter one are just a few of them. And of these two thinkings, when it comes to salvation, I think there's something that's really important for us to understand. And again, my goal at the end of this is not to say, will you please sit on this side or this side? My goal is, would you just please submit yourself to Scripture and let him speak. And would you do me one less, one more favor? Do not withdraw yourself from people that think differently than you. Let's just... just, just just hang in there. Be patient with me. Okay, so let's look at what Jesus says. In verse 37 of chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, you can look there. John, uh, Jesus says this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we see a text here that God is saying that all that, that God has given him, Jesus, will come to him. The coming is, do you want to see, We see both there, God's action and our action at play together. But the the term here when it says, when it's cast out, the verb that's used for cast out isn't a rejection of someone coming, but a turning away of someone who's already in is the way that that verb is used. And so Jesus says, look, all that God has given me will come to me. They will come to me. All that God has given me will come to me. Really, and then he goes on and says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. Really what Jesus is saying is he's showing his nurturing and protecting capacity. We see the confirmation of that when you look at verse 38. What it says right after this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' basis of never losing one isn't based on him, his desire. It's, It's him doing it because it's the will of the Father to do so. And so we see this idea that, that God has given or, or given some to Jesus, and Jesus is then, is then saying, "I will never cast out anyone who is mine. I will, not, I will never turn anyone away who is in, who is in this way." And at the same time, He's also saying, "You will come. You will come." Verses 43 says this in the same text. Jesus answered them, "Do not grumble among yourselves." No one, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Unbelief is um, is to be expected apart from a divine miracle. It's impossible for anyone to come to Christ without the Father giving him grace to do so. Left to himself, the sinner prefers his sin. Conversion is always a work of grace, and everyone would agree with that. It's a work of grace. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to these people is saying, look, don't grumble. You will do what you, <laughs> you want to do. You're going to do what you please to do. You will do these things. This is, this is what you do. But you will never please God apart from God. Romans 3 says, none are righteous, not one. Not one. So what I wanted to do real quickly, tied to my story, is I want to look at a couple scriptures. And then we'll jump out of this into a, a little bit potentially more difficult thing to talk about here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, and this is important because I think I think what is at risk for my children, who may never know a day of not following the Lord, what's at risk for my children is until they surrender their life to Jesus, they might think they were better off than they really were. And that, I think, is that is, the, that is the biggest issue with all of us, is that we tend to think we're just a little bit cooler or a little bit better or God's doing, we're doing God just a little bit of a favor should he, should he save us. And Ephesians 2 kind of makes this as clear as possible. It says, you were dead in your trespasses. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's dead. They aren't doing much. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once Walked, that's as you lived your day, following the course of this world, the brokenness, the, the dark world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, listen this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind Oh, that's such a hard text. But what he's saying here is the same thing Jesus said in one of his responses here. In verse 61, he says, the disciples are grumbling, and Jesus says in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. It's not the flesh. Essentially what he's saying is God rules over who has life. We are flesh, and flesh can't create life. I am keenly aware of my own stupidity apart from Jesus. I'm also aware of my stupidity while following Jesus. That don't, just in case you guys were worried, that, I, that was lost on me. I still make plenty of dumb mistakes. But God isn't restraining us from believing. We're choosing our sin. Because apart from him, we can't choose him. And that's what this scripture is seeing. Verse 44, your grumbling is not decisive. My father's drawing you is the determination in John Verse 64, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted for you. What he's saying there is he's saying, you will stay in your unbelief until my father grants you otherwise. This is what the scriptures say. Now, I I know it's getting a little uncomfortable in here, okay? Don't worry, I got another 30 minutes of this. The positive way to say this, Peter, Peter's response to Jesus, one scholar says it this way, Peter believes in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you in the same way that he warned the unbeliever not to presume autonomy in verses 44 and 65? Now he warns the believer not to presume autonomy. Look at this. Beware, Peter, of presuming that you are the decisive cause of your faith. It was I, myself, who chose you. You didn't choose me first. John 15, 16 talks about that. I know whom I have chosen, John 13, 18. So we see it in the positive way as well. Now Ephesians 2 goes on to say it this way, and this is what's important to me. I always, I've made this joke before, and it's a silly dad joke, but it's the biggest but in all of Scripture in my mind. Because what I read to you was this bleak outlook, right? We're all sins, disobedience, children, walking in wrath, like, dead in our trespasses and sins. Like, this is a, that's a bleak outlook. Like, that, that stinks. If we ended there, it'd be like, well, have a great day, guys. See you later. But he doesn't. The biggest but in all of Scripture. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God... What is it? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there it is, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That is such a beautiful text. It says that God has made us alive in Christ. You didn't make you alive in Christ. God has made us alive in Christ. Faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. The Father gives to Jesus, and so Jesus takes, or as Jesus is given, he shows that faith is works. We see Hebrews 12.10. Jesus is the author and perfecter, the founder and completer of our faith. The beginner and the completer. We see that grace, or faith is a gift so that no one shall boast, as Ephesians says. Philippians 1.29 says it's been granted to us to believe in Jesus Christ. It's been granted to us, unto us, to believe in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1 says faith must be given to us. It's a gift. So when does this happen? And this is the part I think that we struggle with the most. When does this happen? Well, this is why I like to go to personal stories. I was talking with John Mitchell this week, and he said, "Bren." Don't mess up. No, I'm just kidding. He said nicer things than that. He, but he reminded me, he said, all of our theology is changed when it's personal. Sometimes for the worse, but sometimes it can be really powerful and valuable. Ephesians 1, just before this big butt God thing, Ephesians 1, 3, 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to be the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, and that's Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to just go read all of Ephesians chapter 1 and just look at all that God does for those who are his but I think the part that we miss is sometimes we see, okay, it's for the foundation's world. So we to say that election took place before creation indicates that God's choice was due to his own free design and his decision and his love, which we were not dependent on temporal circumstances of human merit. And I'll flesh this out in just a second. The reasons for his election were rooted in depths of his gracious, gracious sovereign nature. And that's the part we struggle with because we're not sovereign. And any time we sit in a truth that's like, I don't like the sound of this, we can find ourselves running to our emotions, which ultimately may mean we leave and walk away from our Christ, our God, like the disciples did here in John 6. We do have a will. The Scriptures clearly recognize that. But apart from God's, apart, we do have, apart from God's man will, man's will will be captive to sin. But we do see all kinds of things. Jesus said that whoever believes in him will not perish. There's a, there's a work in that, John three sixteen that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, John 11. So frequently we see in Scripture commands of unsaved to respond to the Lord. We see that in Joshua and Isaiah and Matthew and John and Revelation. So we see this work. So please don't just run to the, oh great, I'm just a rogue, what's the point? Because that's not what he's talking about here and I'll get there in just a second. But we also see the Bible very clearly says that no person receives Jesus as Savior who has not been chosen by God. That's Romans 8, Romans 9, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter. Or, like we see here in John 6:37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Did you see that promise there? The promise is that who the God has given will come, and those who come will never be cast out. That promise is based on God, not on me and what I do or don't do. The sovereignty of God and the will will of man seem opposite and irreconcilable. And probably, in all honesty, the way that it fully works out, they are to us. I'll just go there. That's why so many well-meaning people have tried to find some compromise in our finite minds. In fact, one scholar says it this way. He says, because we can't stand the tension of mystery, paradox, and antinomy, I had to look that word up, we are inclined to adjust what the Bible teaches so that it will fit our own systems of order and consistency but that presumptuous approach is unfaithful to God's word and leads to confused doctrine and weakened living. It should be noted that other essential scriptural doctrines are also seemingly paradoxical to our limited capacity. It is antinomies that scripture itself is the work of human authors, yet the very words of God. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That salvation is forever, yet saints must remain obedient and persevere to the end. That the Christian life is lived in total commitment and discipline of self, yet it is all of Christ. Such inscrutable truths are an encouragement that the mind of God infinitely surpasses that of man and are a great proof of the divine authorship of Scripture. Human writings on their own would have tried to resolve such problems. This is something that we must wrestle with. We see all over divine sovereignty and human responsibility are integral. They're not in opposition Proverbs, 6, or Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes steps. Which one's first, which one's there? That doesn't matter. Both are at play. And we're moving. Am I a robot, being a puppet? That's an argument in this. No, you have a will. In fact, one could argue that you are able to make more decisions in faith to Jesus. Because when I'm following Jesus now, I can choose to sin and choose to obey him. we see the same thing in this gospel he draws and those will come well then why evangelize because god commands it because we're told to be salt and light in this world that's one of them sometimes we are the tool operating in the spirit that god uses in the others lives to draw them to him what an honor 2 Timothy 2:10 says this therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain or they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory he is doing everything he can to bring to show that the up, obtaining the salvation of the elect may come and i get it let me let me just say this right now i'm not sitting here going oh this is so easy to say what about those that aren't chosen i have a brother and a sister that don't know jesus It's about as real as it gets for me. I have a couple kids that haven't professed faith. It's about as real as it gets to me. This isn't just some trite thing to be like, oh yeah, whatever, it's all fluffy bunnies. But think about it this way. One of the arguments that people will say is, why would God make people that wouldn't choose him? It seems wrong. And that's usually an argument based on the idea of, like, if God's really drawing people out, why, why make them if he knows that? Well, I can say the exact same argument if I believe 100% that I have choice over God's sovereign will. Meaning, if, if we have entirely free choice to decide, We don't need God to draw us out. He draws absolutely everyone, and we decide. Everyone, no matter which camp of theology you sit on, believe that God is all-knowing. So that means that God still creates people knowing that they will never surrender their life to him. It's the same argument. Or if we see ourselves looking at Scripture and saying, no, I think I have the way, let me... Let me talk about this. I'm going to do a really poor job of just this theologian's brilliant conversation on this, where he's talking about it. He said, okay, well, let's say it is choice. Why why did you choose? And the person would say, well, because I saw God's love for me. Okay, well, why did you see God's love for you? Well, because um, so-and-so showed it to me. Well, okay, why did they show that to you and not to someone else? And you can just keep going. And the question, why, 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 why? And where he finally gets at the end of it, and I just, I love this, where he finally gets at the end of it, he says, So ultimately, what you're saying, if you were the determining factor in the entirety of your choice, then you were just a little bit better than someone else. Just a little bit better. Just a teensy bit better because obviously I'm just a little bit better than my brother and sister. Because I had something in me that God wanted more than them. God loves the world. Really, if you think about it, too, that changes the way you see God's love for you. If you say that God loves you because he saw something in you that would make yourself more obedient or more susceptible to him, then it puts a condition on his love. And God is just love. God is love in wrath. God is love in judgment. God is love all the time. He cannot operate outside of it. He's not just loving, he is love. God is sovereign over everything, including who is saved. Concurrently, we are genuinely responsible for our decisions related to salvation. This is why I think God drew me out. Personal story, you can argue with me on all this other stuff, but I'll fight you tooth and nail on this one. I think God drew me out when I was 14. He inclined me, he pulled me in that way. And I, being the slow, (laughs) somewhat stubborn person I am, chose to do a fake response to Jesus. At 16, 17 years old. And then it wasn't until a year or two later that he actually surrendered. I surrendered my life to him. My will was at work in that. It was influenced heavily, but my will was at work in that. And I will tell you this, hear me on this. I wish I could have those two years back. The amount of pain and brokenness that I've had to work through in my life in those two years of me pretending, I wish I could have the two years earlier than that. I learned a lot about other religions, which was fun, but I wish I could have had more of that time back. When I was talking with John Mitchell about this, he said, I'm going to make him say it because it sounds harsh, but it's true. He said, God obviously desires something more than for all people to be saved because he doesn't save all people. So that can't be his sovereign will. God desires that he be glorified in all things. And this does, whether we like it or not. Saving, if you believe in God's choice, you most likely would answer the question to, are you a Christian? You'd say, yes. And I would say, why? If you really understood it and believe it, you'd say, man, I don't know. I was a disgusting, hot mess and God brought me to him. If you believe in it's your choice, then what ends up happening is you tend to believe that, well, I think I, I, I did this or because I made that and, and I, I have a hard time reconciling in my heart that if it was all based on my choice, how can I not choose wrong later. And that flies in the face of Jesus saying, I do not lose one of mine that the Father has given me. So what do we do about this truth? Well, you go home, have a wonderful lunch, enjoy the frustrations you have, and the many theological papers that you could probably disagree on it. Um, I think one scholar said it really well. He says this, theologian, It says, while I myself hold very definite and strong views on the subject, I will not separate from a man who cannot accept and believe the doctrines of election and predestination and is Armenian, This is the free will side. As long as he tells me that we are all saved by grace and as long as the Calvinist, the predestination, which is not, that's a, I want to be careful, those aren't exactly the same, there's extra beliefs in there. As long as the Calvinist agrees, as he must, that God calls all men everywhere to repentance, then why separate? Why separate the desire would be to fight. The desire would be to argue. Some of you right now, and I want to be really clear, some of you right now, you're, you're feeling like a, a, a stake in the ground just got loose. And it feels like you're, it's flapping in the wind and you're not sure what to do. And that was not my desire. I would love to walk with you and talk more about this outside of it. If you have any frustrations, you can email Jonathan at revolution22.org. <laughs> but what do you do when there's a truth that is hard for you to reconcile? This is what we wanted to talk about today. What do you do when it gets really hard? One of the hardest truths out there, and this is how I want to operate in this. Uh, Again, I would gladly talk to you more about this. I did not do this justice to the level it could have been done because I did not want to get into all of the other isms and ologies and (laughs) things that can be talked about to help declutter it. I would gladly talk to you love it. As long as our desire is to draw into each other and to the Lord. If you want to come and fight or tell me that because I just said this, that this is a reason to divide, like, hang out just a little bit longer because I want to talk to that for a second. So I think the problem is when Jesus confronts us with hard truths, our first inclination is to run or to instantly check out. To just, to do so. Now, what I want to do is have one of the most ridiculous transitions into something that I think is so pertinent to us understanding God, not in what we just talked about, so I'm sorry for that. But this idea of, I need you to, can you sit on a couch with me again? i got to have a conversation with you guys. See, I think the hardest truth out there for us to operate in, one that I think we actually all disagree on, and we'll continue to disagree on, in fact, I think if we asked this to try and work it out, we could spend the rest of the day trying to figure it out. It's this, John thirteen thirty four through 35. A new commandment I give, you, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And they're like, well, we all agree with that. Yeah, but what's loving? What's loving? What one person defines as loving, another one doesn't. Let me just give you a really perfect example. This little piece of cloth. Is it loving to wear one? Is it loving to not wear one? And so, let me take it off of something so frustrating. Whew, careful there, right? Homeschool or public school, which one's better? Ford or Chevy? <laughs> vaccine or no vaccine? Right or Left? Who's right? Right, not right or left. It was a bad transition. Who's correct? And let me go one step further. If we're correct, does that justify us to operate in an unloving way? Even if we are certain that we're doing everything right with our money like I talked about in Novotis, or we're certain that, that salvation actually has, plays it different than this way, do we get to operate without love, and distance ourselves from one another. So, what I wanted to do, because I think it's long overdue as a church, and I think it's long overdue in this sermon because I'm going nice and long, is I want to talk about Mass real quickly. And the reason for doing that, and the reason for doing that inside of this text is because Jesus is confronting people on something that is really hard for them to stomach. And they are choosing to run from Jesus, Now, I want to be really clear, really, really clear. I know at Rev that there are handfuls of people that aren't in this room and will not be in this room today that are maybe online right now for a myriad of reasons based around this. There are people that are not coming because they are riddled with fear. They're so afraid of the disease that they can't bring themselves to be in a room with someone else. We have people who are not coming because they are in good faith caring for someone who is completely compromised and refuse to put them in harm's way. So they give up their rights. We have people that aren't coming because they're afraid that by wearing this, we're losing some liberties in our country and they won't come until they can't. And we have people that aren't coming because they respect us as elders that we've asked people to wear, and they refuse to come and not acknowledge that. Do you you see that? And I want to be really clear. I care about all of them. I love every single one of them. And it breaks my heart that being right has been more important than loving each other. It breaks my heart that we can't be in the room together. And I understand it. So here I go again, Starting, ending where I started, I'm sorry. I am not exuding emotion because I'm worried about what you will think about me. I'm exuding emotion because I know people that are on that camera right now that desperately want to be here, but for a myriad of reasons are not doing so. And I know that people in this room right now, you are sitting sweating based on whether someone is or isn't covering their face. It's a hard truth. So will you come sit on the couch with me for a second again? In a second here, I'm going to share my position on this. But before I do, I want to talk about this a little bit more and I want to invite the other elders, pastors to join me. And the reason for involving them is because what many of you don't know is I actually think that all four of us are on different spots regarding mass. Yeah, come on up. Jonathan, old John, John, and Brian. Yeah. And the reason why we're having us stand up here is because I think it'd be too easy for us to quickly try and find a faction within the group. And that's the part that I want to speak to. I know this isn't uh, the greatest of transitions, so I'm sorry for that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't hold a view on this. I'm not even saying that you're wrong depending upon your view. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you should never allow a view to give you an excuse to operate outside of God's love. Never. It's foolishness. We should be the most deferring people out there. We should be. It should. It should be. It should almost be annoying how quick we are to wait. What, what do you need? Sorry. You want to? You go first. No. You take this seat. Like we should be so so accommodating in that way. Now, hear me on this. Not a relativism accommodating. I'm not saying that there's no truth. I'm just saying we should stop worrying about being right. This should be a casual conversation. Hey, John, should I, would you like me to wear this, or would you not, like, which one should it be? This should be a casual conversation, not an offensive one. And if John says, man, I'm really struggling with you to wear this, then I would say, brother, man, I don't want to, I don't want to cause you to struggle. That, in essence, just took us to Romans 14. He's the weaker brother. Now, as a stronger brother, I have a way to operate what the church has done wrong, and what many of us, myself included, have done wrong is we have deified or holied one way or the other. How dare we? I just talked about a theology that the church has been dividing over since the Reformation at at minimum. And now we're just repeat in this, and before that it was probably drums in church, and you know, after that it was skinny jeans for worship leaders. I don't know what it is. The point I want to make is that we disagree on everything. Oh my goodness, guys. And when we as leaders have been trying to make decisions here, we have not been trying to make it flippantly or based on our own predispositions, although those have influenced us. We'd be lying to say we weren't influenced by that, which is one of the reasons why I love that we view it slightly different. Because we respect and love unity, which is not uniformity. It's not saying we have to agree on everything. We have never said that. If you've been to our partner class, you know I say you don't have to agree on everything to be here. The scriptures teach very clearly that the body will be made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic background, every skin color. Do you really think when a group of that many people get together, we're going to agree on everything? Even culturally, culturally, Are we going to agree on everything? No, but the one thing we agree on that matters most, saved by grace in Jesus Christ. He is the one that unites us. Will you love people who violate your conscience? That's the question I want to ask you. Will you love people that violate your conscience around this or around anything else? Can you do it? The power in Christian unity isn't that we all agree with each other. That's called tribalism. It's that we can be together and disagree. There's been a lot of collateral damage to this. You all know someone who is struggling because of their view. You all know someone and my encouragement to you would be to step into their life respectfully, with deference, with love, with patience, with gentleness, with kindness. These are all fruits of the Spirit. Those that who are in Christ, we carry those. We operate in those. Um, I said I would share my, my position, so I don't want to lie to you. My position is whatever my preference is, I don't care. Do I wake up every morning going, I cannot wait to find one that accessorizes my clothes? No. But if I know, or if I don't know, that wearing or not wearing is is a chance to draw, to show someone who Jesus is, man, I'll do it all day long either way. I will gladly forsake my rights because I'm told to die to myself. Which, coming back to the text... You have died to yourself. You are not your own. You were bought for a price, a very, very high price that you cannot repay. It is not expected of you. So as a church, we are, have been prayerfully trying to decide how to navigate this, how to operate with this. And I know that this is going to cause some of you to squirm and wrestle. And it may just be too much. My, my plea, my ask would be that you would have a conversation with us. Don't just run. But as a church, we're going to ask you to defer to one another. To find every opportunity to put on a mask if you need to or to take one off if you need to. And to be willing to ask when you don't know. And to stop using whether someone is or isn't wearing one as if you know who that person is or what they believe. And as a reason to then create a faction in the church Granted, it was around finances, but James tells us to not show any partiality to anyone. Show no partiality to anyone. We want to find people that agree with us and only sit with them. That's not the way that God made us. There's no way that that'll work with every nation, tribe, tongue, present. So if you are in conversation with someone that is struggling one way or the other, would you die to yourself in that conversation? Even if they're violating your conscience, would you, would you, would you die to yourself? Because I think that's what God has commanded of us. And that's the hardest teaching, to love as Christ has loved us. And that's the hardest one we're going to have. And so here in a second, what we're going to do, actually before, I have been way off my notes and way over time. Do you guys have anything else that needs to be said or would like to clarify or help me make sense across the board? Please.
0: scriptures are just filled with reasons why I should love each one of you Mm. and why you should love me Mm -hmm. regardless of my personal beliefs um, Second Corinthians and I I just want to leave you guys with this okay Finally brothers rejoice, Hmm. aim for restoration, Hmm. comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Hmm. Um, There are people around you that need your comfort, Hmm. regardless of their tribe. And you can define tribe however you want. Right. Uh, You get to do that.
1: Right. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Anything over here from the Johns? Okay. Okay. Um, We're going to do something that I think will hopefully be an application to everything that we've heard today. We're going to take communion, but we're going to do so circling up this whole room. Um, But before you do that, don't move yet. Okay. I'm going to ask you to do something. Um, Can you um, set us for worship, Kels? Real quick. I'm going to ask us to do something. I want to be really intentional, taking the lights down a little bit, because I want you to actually, for a moment, get individual, okay? Because in a second, we're going to get collective.
0: Individually,
1: if you have murdered someone in your heart, which is the way that Jesus says being angry with someone, because of a Facebook post, because they were or they were not wearing a mask, or because they don't sit or fit into the faction that you have, you have set up for yourself, then you, as a child of God, repent. Repent and go seek forgiveness. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the church was making, or making a, a mockery of communion for a number of reasons, but the biggest reason was division. They were, they were in hostility towards brothers and sisters and just mocking the blood of Jesus that has unified us. So would you spend this time, the band's gonna come up here, and we're gonna sing one song, and you can go grab your communion, then you can circle up in this room. But before you do that, you ask the Lord, search your heart. Psalm 139, search your heart. If there is anything in you that needs to be presented, I don't care who it is, I don't care if you even know them or don't know them, you don't need to go and say, well, because you did this, you just go and say, I have sinned against you, forgive me because we will not as a body allow factions or divisions to exist anymore. I will fight ferociously as one of your pastors over and over and over again for unity, not at the expense of truth. That's not what I'm saying, and please stop putting that in my mouth. Because the truth is, Jesus says, they will know that you are mine for your love for one another's. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is that that we would be one like he and the Father are one. That has massive implications. And so if you need to seek repentance, if you need to go and call someone, if you've already had a conversation that's blown up, you just saw your pastors, your elders standing up and we're willing to have that conversation with someone. If you haven't had a conversation yet with them, I encourage you to go do it first by yourself. But do it. And then after we sing this song, we'll go into communion, and I'll finally let you leave. me pray. Father, you, you accomplish more than anything I said in the last hour in a breath. You know the hearts of every single one of us. You know who is right now squirming because of their own sin. You know those that are online that are that are um, sitting in in fear or self-righteous, and you know those who are online because they're striving so hard to love people with the way that makes sense for them. God, you know where every single one of us are, and yet you still sent Jesus to the cross for us. My choice as to wear a mask or not wear a mask does not define who I am in you. That has been defined by who you are in me. Forgive us for making trite, things, a reason to completely abandon the, the real things, the truth. God, I still think about who I was apart from you, and every now and then I see my flesh well up, and I operate in that person, and just forgive me for trying to put on the old self when the old self is gone. And so God, I pray for amazing conversations. I pray for phones to be blowing up because of the things that people thought, whether it was through social media or calls or anything else, presumptions that were made, ways that we have made a a silly thing a fight. And God, in your sovereignty, in your grace, would you allow us to put the pieces back together (laughs) relationally so we can get back on focus to the thing that matters, which is you so that we can make every step and every opportunity an opportunity to defer, where we can have a conversation with another brother and not get wound up because they disagree with us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Everything else fades away. We thank you for um, your sacrifice for us, Jesus. We thank you for drawing us. We thank you for making us your own, adopting us in. We thank you for the life that comes in you alone with nothing else. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take the blood of Jesus. If you want to partake in it, I would ask you grab and just circle up. You're welcome to stand in front of me up here as well. I want you to take a look around I know it feels weird to to make eye contact with people this is this is the community of God old, young tired excited frustrated new, old this is the community of God whether this is your hometown or you live across the country, this is your community. These are your brothers and sisters. We are one with them, not based on our agreements on anything except for Jesus. It is ours in the spirit. And so this is the community. This is your this is your this is your family. And we are there is nothing. Nothing that will separate us. Because it's not based on my doing or your doing, it's based on his. And so Jesus gave us his blood and gave us his body. And so we do that in remembrance of him. Let's take, let's eat of the body. And just like this, the drink that is represents his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And this is blood is what unites us. We become one because of him and what he has done for us on the cross. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.